From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Aortic valve disease is a condition in which the valve between the main pumping chamber of your heart and the main artery to your body doesn't work properly. Treatment for aortic valve disease depends on the severity of your condition, whether or not you're experiencing signs and symptoms, and if your condition is getting worse. On today's program, we'll discuss aortic valve repair and replacement with a Mayo Clinic expert. But it wasn't always that way. The very early days of when we started was a new procedure, a big learning curve. The tubes we used were much larger, and it was a more difficult, complicated procedure. Now it's become much more streamlined. Also on the program, we'll learn how rapid response teams help hospitalized patients get critical care when they need it. And we'll discuss ways to improve the experience for women in medicine. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. The aortic valve is one of four valves that regulate blood flow throughout the heart. These valves keep blood flowing in the correct direction through the heart. The aortic valve separates the heart's main pumping chambers, the left ventricle, from the main artery uh, that supplies oxygen-rich blood to your body, the aorta. When the aortic valve isn't working properly, it can interfere with blood flow as well as force the heart to work harder to supply the necessary blood to the rest of your body. In these cases, aortic valve repair or aortic valve replacement procedures might be needed to fix the problem. Here to discuss is the former chair of cardiovascular medicine and the director of the catheter lab at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chet Rehal. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rehal. It's great to see you again. Thank you very much for having me back. Great to be here. How big of a problem is this? How many patients do you see with this? You know, it it really is an important and large problem because um, blockage of the aortic valve or aortic stenosis in medical parlance is the most common valvular heart disease, particularly in older folks. And all of us are getting older. None of us are getting any younger, right? So as we It just we happened hit, to me yeah. <clears throat> just a few minutes ago. <laughs> as, as we hit our 60s, 70s, and 80s, the chances of getting calcium buildup in the aortic valve go up. And it's very common, actually. So we see a lot of patients here in our valve clinic, and we've treated a lot of patients with aortic stenosis. Can you explain the difference between, because you mentioned aortic stenosis and maybe then the difference between a leaky valve or aortic regurgitation? Yes, absolutely. So there's two problems that can happen, or actually a combination. One is blockage, and second is leakage. There are certain patients in whom the aortic valve, either because it's, it's dilating or there's something wrong with the leaflets, or they've had an infection on the leaflets or something like that, that actually causes the valve not to close properly. It's like a trap door that doesn't close and if part of it uh, stays open, then a lot of blood will rush backwards into the heart. And that can also be a problem. So this is also an important condition we deal with, but it's not as common as the aortic stenosis or blockage. How do you know if you have uh, this sort of problem? Yeah, again, a great question. So since the aortic valve is arguably one of the most important valves in the heart, all of the blood that goes to our body has to go through the aortic valve. If it begins to narrow or if it begins to leak, very soon patients will become short of breath. They'll start having symptoms. Shortness of breath is probably the most common. Other symptoms that can occur include chest pain or chest heaviness, just like angina. Um, Or probably the most serious symptom is when people begin to get lightheaded or pass out. How long does that usually take from when they start to have a problem with that valve? Yeah, it usually takes some years, actually. So the first symptoms, people may just describe to maybe getting older. As I said, it's a disease of older folks. 
oh, I don't have quite as much energy, I don't have quite as much breath. Um, and they're ascribing it to just getting a little older in years. turns out they've actually got aortic stenosis, and something can be done to help them with it. And, you know, um, this used to often be treated with a surgical intervention. And so how do you decide if someone needs the valve completely replaced or if it can be repaired or yeah. surgery versus some other approach? You know, the great thing now, uh, Jake, is we have so many good treatment options for our patients. We still do open-heart surgery on many, many patients here every single day at Mayo Clinic. It's still a great treatment. However, we've got these newer treatments that are less invasive, easier on the patients, and the way we decide is by doing a, a careful examination of the patient, doing a careful non-invasive test like a echocardiogram and a CT scan of their heart. We look at the anatomy. We look at their overall health condition, right? So if they're a younger person and they're otherwise healthy, they probably can breeze through open-heart surgery at a very, very low risk and do well for many years. On the other hand, if they're older and they have multiple medical problems, they've got some lung disease, kidney disease, diabetes, prior strokes, et cetera, then the risk of open-heart surgery goes way up. And in those patients, we preferentially now choose a TAVR procedure rather than open-heart surgery. So it's really a combination of what the valve looks like and the patient's general medical condition. What does TAVR mean? That's T-A-V-R. I've got it in my notes, but what does that mean? I led you on there. So it's (laughs) transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. So ah. transcutaneous just means that we're going through the skin, like through the leg, as opposed to opening up the chest. And, and so can you explain a little bit how that actually takes place? That seems wild to think about a, a surgery being condensed into something that you can yeah. just do through the leg. Yeah, it, it really is. It's uh, it, For those of us that have been working in valve disease for 10, 20 years, it, it's nothing short of a miracle, i got to tell you. Because now we can routinely send patients, older folks, to, to this procedure so one night stay in hospital and they're home the next day. It's really, as I said, like a miracle. So the way the procedure is actually done, the majority of the patients we will now do with conscious sedation, which means a little IV sedative, as opposed to having a full, full general anesthetic. So they're more or less awake, just like a balloon and stent procedure for the arteries of the heart. We go into the leg, okay? We go all the way back up to the heart. We find the, find the valve. We put a wire and then a catheter, which is simply a long tube, across the aortic valve, okay? And then we can place the valve. The valves are sort of pre-mounted on a balloon. We move them across the valve, and we inflate the balloon, and boom, there it is. We also have other types of valves that are self-expanding. Those are also pre-mounted. We put them across. We pull the sheath back, and the valve just kind of opens up like a flower, and, and is just perfectly in place. So... And we do all of this with x-ray and ultrasound guidance. So it's all non-invasive. Patients are more or less awake during the procedure. They're comfortable. Nothing should hurt. And uh, the, the actual procedure, oftentimes, now we get done in 30 or 40 minutes. Whenever we have heart docs yeah. in here and we talk about surgery, they are going in through the leg. Why, why do you go in through the leg to get to the heart? We can do that, actually. And for the TAVR procedure... When we first started doing it, about half of them were actually done through the ribs on the left side of the chest. But that, that's a bigger procedure. It's an operation. You have to open the rib cage, which hurts afterwards. And then you have to you know, cut and poke a hole right into the heart directly. Okay. And so it's a bigger, more involved procedure. The, the reason we use the legs is because you know, it's the old knee bone is connected to the hip bone thing. Mm-hmm. The artery in the leg goes all the way back up to the heart. The femoral artery goes into the iliac artery the aorta, and the aorta goes right to the aortic valve. 
So it's our nice, clear pathway all the way back up to the heart, right to the aortic valve. Hmm. So which patients are candidates for this procedure? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, patients that have um, basically just one problem, like i.e. the aortic stenosis, and they don't need other things like bypass surgery or mitral valve replacement or tricuspid valve replacement, if they have one thing wrong with the heart, and if they're not good candidates for an open heart, so for example, if they've got bad lung disease from smoking or they're diabetic or they have kidney disease or they've had prior strokes, then the risk with an open heart is much higher. So in that circumstance, we'll often nowadays recommend they have a TAVR procedure. What are the advantages to having a TAVR procedure done over just a regular? Yeah. What would the regular surgery then be? So the regular surgery, uh, the, the, the former tried and true treatment would be an open heart where it's a full general anesthetic operating room. They go in right through the breastbone, you know, spread it apart and go into the aorta and then replace the valve. It's a good procedure. We do it every single day. It's much more involved. So the biggest advantage to the TAVR procedure is it's, you know, it's just less involved. It's minimally invasive. It's still an invasive procedure, but not... Shorter recovery time. Yeah, one day, one night Mm -hmm. in hospital for the majority of patients. Some patients may need to spend two or three days in-house, but the vast majority is just one night in hospital now. What are the risks? So that's a good question. Anytime you work in the heart for anything, there's a risk with it because you're working right in the heart and the serious things include a risk to a person's life, and that's probably 1% or less with a TAVR procedure. Um, second things are strokes or heart attacks that can occur, you know, 2 or 3% risk. Um, next risk would be needing an, an emergency uh, surgery if something goes wrong, and that's another 1% or 2%. So the way we look at it now is we, we explain all this to our patients and we say, look, on the good side, we have 90 plus percent, 90 to 95 percent good chances. But there is a risk. And you're the only one that can really decide whether or not it's worth taking that risk. Because if we don't do anything, then there's a risk with that too, right? So it's a matter of balancing these things. And patients need to, and their families need to be very comfortable that they're making the right decision. Almost always things go well, but every now and then something happens. And having seen many of these patients in the, in the hospital or out of the out of the hospital, you know, again, it can be re- really life changing. Ability to remove some of that feeling of shortness of breath all the time, and, and I'm thinking, um, you know, along that lines, it, it's a it's an such an impressive advancement in medicine. What do we know about the long term prognosis of the procedure? Yeah, that's a great question. So we know quite a bit about it now. This procedure was first because how many years have you been doing it? Oh, here over. 10 years now. Okay. Yeah, I think since the late uh, 08, 09, I think okay. we did our first. So here in Rochester, we've now done over 1,300 of these. And when you add in all of our Mayo Clinic sites you know, around the country, I think we're really one of the largest TAVR programs in the nation now. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. You know, I remember the very early days of when we started. I mean, it was a new procedure, a big learning curve. The tubes we used were you know, much larger. Um, so, and it was a more difficult, complicated procedure. Now it's become much more streamlined. We've been talking about treating aortic valve disease with the former chair of cardiovascular medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chet Rehal. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll shift gears and talk about other valve diseases and new therapies. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. In the studio today is Dr. Chet Rehal, former chair of cardiovascular medicine at Mayo Clinic and director of the catheterization lab. Is there ever a situation where a patient will say, I don't want to have this valve replaced? What are some other options for me? 
This is a really a great question, and, and actually it's a question we deal with on a daily basis here. Not every patient that has heart disease ought to get a procedure, right? Um, they ought to have an operation or a procedure if there's a good likelihood of helping them. Now, as I mentioned uh, in the earlier segment, aortic stenosis tends to occur in older people. So as you can imagine, we see many patients here at Mayo in their 80s, 90s, or even above. And those patients often will have um, choices to make or they've thought about what they want to have done at this phase in their life. Um, and some patients may just not be good candidates because they have too many other debilitating problems, right? So a very common example is bad lung disease, right? Smoking was very, very common in this country, you know, decades ago. So unfortunately now we see many patients in their 80s and above who have bad lung disease. So if you have really bad lung disease and you're getting short of breath with that, of course the treatment is oxygen and other things, but if you've also got aortic stenosis, yes, we can do a procedure on you, but it may not help you that much because you're going to be short of breath going into the procedure and short of breath coming out of it. So then the question arises, why should you do anything if it's really not going to help the patient that much? So increasingly, um, we've worked with our palliative care services, our, our geriatricians, who are real experts in talking to patients about you know, their values, their goals, their role functioning, and, and how much they want to do, right? If you ask a cardiologist or a cardiac surgeon, you know the answer you're going to get. Go ahead with the surgery. We're, we can do something for you, right? Uh, Surgeons on, like to do surgery. Yeah. And on the other hand, sometimes the question becomes not whether we can do something, but whether we should do something. And so that's this is a highly personal question that only patients can think about and really answer. What are other valve disease problems? So the other valves that we deal with, at least in adult cardiology, the most common ones are the mitral and the tricuspid valve. So the heart is basically a two-stroke piston pump. The mitral valve lets blood into the heart, the heart beats, which is the piston, and it goes out the aortic valve. We have an inlet valve and an outlet valve. The inlet valve is called the mitral valve. And the mitral valve, uh, just like the aortic valve, has to open and close. It's a very complex structure, though. It's got many little uh, what we call cordi, which are like tethers holding it together. Hmm. It's attached directly to the heart muscle. And anything that can affect the leaflets of the valve that can affect these little tethers or affect the heart muscle can cause problems with the mitral valve. The most common thing is leakage of the mitral valve. And so if the valve doesn't close properly, again, you can have a lot of blood going backwards towards the lungs as opposed to out the, to the body. And that blood going back towards the lungs can cause really bad shortness of breath for patients. Uh, the good news there is We've got many, many options. We've got standard open-heart surgery. We've got minimally invasive uh, surgery. And now we have new treatments like the mitral clip, which is, a, again, a procedure that we do in the cath lab right through the patient's leg. It's like putting a staple on the, on the mitral valve leaflets to kind of hold them together so that they, they're not leaking so much. And so it's fascinating because it seems more and more like we're getting into these minimally invasive surgeries that are giving patients not only greater options up front, but also when they wouldn't be candidates for open heart surgery, there's, there's now options that, you know, get much less invasive. So where do we see the future of this, of this going? Again, a, a great question, and, and this is an area of, of interest to me because this is the area that I work in. So the future is, is really bright for patients with valve disease. We have literally dozens of therapies that are being developed by many innovative companies out there. Mayo Clinic is involved in the development of some of these. And um, in the future, what I can predict is that there will be in the aortic valve a number of different types of heart valves that we can offer. 
and in the mitral valve, there'll be a number of different percutaneous or you know, right through the leg type of procedures that we can offer patients. So you're talking about replacing a valve or stem cells or medication? Right now, primarily, we're talking about replacing the valve. Um, and again, there's I've lost count of how many different valves are being developed. There's literally that many. So there's two major ways of getting a mitral valve into the heart short of open heart. One is through the side of the chest, and there's a number of valves being developed. The other one that we're particularly interested in are the valves that go up through the leg. This, this, this is a procedure that we've uh, helped to develop here at Mayo Clinic, and we're working with a number of companies who have their own very innovative designs. Our hope is that we'll eventually be able to identify and refine different valve designs that we can get in quickly, safely, and effectively for these patients. Well, you know, and you mentioned something earlier I think was critical that Mayo Clinic's been doing thousands of these procedures in the aortic valve. And I think what's unique about this opportunity is you, now you have that muscle memory of how to do some of these complex valve procedures so that you mentioned that learning curve that exists early on in product development um, seems like a sort of a bright future for those going into this field and patients being cared for them because of that muscle memory ingrained in, in the practice here at Mayo Clinic. You know, it's so interesting that the practice of cardiology is completely different than the way it was uh, 10 or even 5 years ago. I mean, the type of procedures I do now are completely different. And uh, it's a very rapidly evolving field, which is good news for our patients. If part of what gets you to the point of needing to have a valve replaced is age, we've got a lot of baby boomers that are coming into that. See, they're not old enough yet, or they're just getting, getting to getting be. Yeah. Almost there. So that'll be a whole lot more patients. It's going to be a ton of patients, and in fact, if you look at the demographics of the United States population, the fastest-growing segment are those over the age of 80, and um, you know they they will have medical issues to deal with, and we as a institution and as a country are going to have to figure out how to help these people, right? We've been talking about cardiovascular medicine with the former division chair at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chet Rehall. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rehall. Very welcome. It's a pleasure. Still more to come on Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll learn about the work of rapid response teams. And a discussion about the challenges women in medicine face. Want to hear and see more on Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. YouTube is where it's at. YouTube is where it's at. (laughs) Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network. Let's talk about opioids. They can help manage some pain, but it's easy to use them inappropriately. Misuse can cause illness, harm, or even death. And health problems can develop even when you think you're being careful. So this could be a common scenario, raiding the medicine cabinet for leftover painkillers after a sprained ankle or toothache. There's nothing wrong with popping an occasional opioid, right? Well, pain medicine specialist Dr. Michael Hooten says opioids can be dangerous. They could have adverse side effects that you don't know about, and that includes addiction or accidental overdose. So when is it appropriate to take opioids? Dr. Hooten says after an operation, opioids are highly effective or after severe trauma. And 
opioids are also beneficial during procedures such as colonoscopies. Problems happen when people take them without a prescription or for too long. He says if people are predisposed to develop addiction, either neurobiologically or from a behavioral perspective, then all of a sudden we are selecting individuals who may go on to have long-term problems. So if you have pain, talk to your healthcare provider. And now let's move on to what we eat. Added sugar. That's the real sugar we should worry about, says Dr. Donald Hendrude, who heads up the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program and is the author of the Mayo Clinic Diet. Dr. Hendrude says added sugars account for a big portion of calories in most people's diets and are one of the main causes of weight gain. But there are sweet treats that don't have any added sugars. Fruit. A small piece of fruit is only about 60 calories. It has a lot of water, some nutrients, and fiber. So there are many other beneficial things in fruit. Not only will sugar from fruit not cause you to gain weight, it likely does the opposite. Dr. Hendrude says studies have shown when people increase their fruit and vegetable intake, their overall risk of gaining weight decreases because they're not eating something else that's higher in calories. So having a sweet tooth doesn't have to be a bad thing. Just make sure you're picking the right sweets with the right kind of sugars. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand, and I'm Tracy McRae. Our rapid response team is a group of critical care specialists available to rush to the bedside of any patient who may be heading for trouble. Rapid response teams can provide timely assessments of hospitalized patients. Who may need critical care interventions, or to be transferred to a higher level of care. The team often has no prior knowledge of a particular patient and must make a swift assessment of a situation based on a verbal history, the medical record, an examination, vital signs, and any other available information. Here to discuss Mayo Clinic's rapid response teams is Mayo Clinic pulmonologist and critical care specialist, Dr. Alice Gallo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gallo. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to meet you too. So, Dr. Gallo, what makes up a rapid response team at Mayo Clinic, and who's all involved? So, here at Mayo, what makes up the rapid response team is a critical care fellow, a critical care nurse, and a respiratory therapist.、Um, there's always a、um, board-certified critical care physician who oversees all the rapid response activations, and we're ready to discuss the cases with the fellows and make sure it also turns into a teaching. Um, I'm confused because I'm the layperson here. How is this not just an emergency room or an emergency department? What is the difference here? That's a very good question. So this team specifically only works in the hospital and takes care of patients who are already admitted to a regular ward. So someone who came in because of a pneumonia, and instead of getting better, they got a little worse. So the the primary team needs critical care help at the bedside. Yeah, I think that's the important distinction, Dr. Gallo. That is tough for a lot of people to understand. So, when you think about, you know, people are in the hospital because they're really sick. So, what type of patients would get a, a rapid response team involved? We take care of, we help taking care of everybody in the hospital. So, someone who came in for a medical problem, someone who came in for a surgery and did do so well after the surgery, any patient who is admitted into the hospital. I don't know. It sounds like it's a TV show script ready to roll. The rapid response team. That's pretty pretty much it. It's very it's it's a very cool gig. It is exciting. Do you enjoy your work? I love my work. I love、um, the fact that we are able to bring help to to the bedside from the ICU to the bedside, and particularly I love 
uh, talking to the other teams also. It's a very good collabor- collaborative work um, that I feel it helps the patients a lot. Yeah, see, that, that's the piece I'd be curious to hear more about. So, you know, um, I can see some people saying, well, hey, my team in the hospital knows what's going on best. So how does the rapid response team work with the team who's directing my care already? When care is the best is when the primary team is at bedside. So they are the, the ones who know the patient best, like you just said, and they know the families, they know the backgrounds, they know the patient's specific interests regarding f- higher level of care. So when we get there, usually the primary team is at bedside. They give us a quick background. Like you said, we have to think on our on our feet pretty quickly. Um, and with the primary team, we make the decisions. So the nurse puts up the bat signal and you guys are there just like that. Is this how this works? We usually get to the bedside in about three to five minutes average, but we have to be at bedside in 10 minutes. And so... Is it just that the nurse, do you guys have pagers? That, how have, does that work? Yeah, that's a very good question. We have, we have a specific rapid response team pager. Um, anyone can activate the rapid response. So family members, we had instances that patients themselves activated the rapid response team to come to their bedside. Bedside nurse, the primary team, anyone taking care of, of the patient can, can activate, can call us. Yeah, so that's that's great. So we've got pagers now. So what are we changing how that's going to look? Are there other advancements that Mayo Clinic is making when we think about how rapid response teams are deployed? Um, right now, we're still thinking we're still using just the pagers. I'm pretty sure with with app development and and with advancements in old um, medicine and computers, I'm pretty sure we're going to have new things. So how does this go once the rapid response team then gets on the scene? Do all Everyone else that's in the room steps off to the sides. How does how do you guys do the handoff? No, we want everybody in. We mm-hmm. want everybody involved. Um, usually, what happens is the critical care fellow will make the first assessment. We'll go straight to the to a patient's bedside and talk to the patient. Um, the, our the RT nurse will um, get the vital signs, put the patient on a monitor, and the respiratory therapist is there in case it's something related to to um, difficulty breathing or or anything um, respiratory related. And the, the primary team usually will tell us what's going on, what's their concern, which is the, the main piece of information that helps us actually. So we're really, it sounds like bringing in lots of additional expertise to help surround that patient with an added layer of support while they're already in a, a tough situation in the yeah. hospital. Yeah. Okay. So that all sounds perfect. So does that mean that We've gotten better at patient care. Are outcomes better for patients who undergo one of these activations? That's a very tricky question. Um, <laughs> so at Mayo, we already had the whole pur- sorry the whole pur- purpose of the, of creating uh, rapid response teams was to actually make sure that we get to these patients before they decompensate. That started in 2005. Wait, wait what does decompensate oh, mean? Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> So for patients who are admitted in the hospital, uh, before they get to a point that we can't make them better in terms of they have uh, their heart stops or they stop breathing, um, the whole purpose was in 2005, um, it was noticed that several um, heart attacks in the hospital, cardiac arrests in the hospital, when people's hearts stopped in the hospital, could have been prevented by an extra layer of eyes um, looking into this patient. So that's when rapid response teams were created, 2005. So what we want, what we hoped to do was that extra layer would catch any signs that these patients were leaning towards a not good outcome 
and make sure that we caught them early to take them to the ICU if they needed or to make sure that extra interventions were done. Um, so far, we have conflicting data showing that some, in some hospitals in some countries, rapid response teams actually improve outcomes, and in some hospitals in some countries, it doesn't. At Mayo, we had very little um, cardiac arrest to begin with, even before we started our team, and it's still very little. We do um, bring a lot of people to the ICU, um, but outcomes are actually um, very conflicting. So that is one of the things that has changed. You are taking patients to the ICU. You are catching that. Mm-hmm. We're uh, catching that, but we didn't notice an Im- a hard improvement in um, mortality because we had a very low numbers of, cardi- of cardiac arrest to begin with. Well, certainly you're getting the right resources to that patient, I imagine, makes families feel better that they have those additional resources a bit available to them. And, and so I, I know certainly having been part of cases where patients really feel glad that there's the ability to get extra support there at a moment's notice. I've noticed that the primary teams really like us, the bedside nurses really like us, the, the families really, really like us. Um, and it's what you said, people just feel like the extra layer is very helpful and it's, it's a fun work. Well, that's wonderful. We've been talking about rapid response teams with Dr. Alice Gallo, a pulmonologist and critical care specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Gallo. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss women in medicine and how their experience differs from men with a Mayo Clinic expert. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2017, for the first time, the number of women enrolling in United States medical schools exceeded the number of men, according to the data from the Association of American Medical Colleges. While that number of women becoming physicians has increased, the challenges they face haven't changed. Common frustrations for women in medicine include gender bias and feeling like they must choose between career advancement and starting a family. Here to discuss is Dr. Susan Mochler, an anesthesiologist at Mayo Clinic who's designing a course about how to enhance the experience of women in medicine. Welcome to the program, Dr. Moshler. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here to talk about women in medicine and certainly our course. Well, Dr. Moshler, you're an anesthesiologist by trade. What led you to do research on women in medicine? What sort of personal experiences or research experiences led you to this place? Well, it's interesting. I do not come from a family of medicine, but from my own experiences as a child, I was interested in pursuing medicine. And I never thought otherwise that I wouldn't be able to do both, have a family and become a physician. And during my anesthesiology training, uh, women are approximately 25 to 30% of anesthesiologists. And coming off of maternity leave, I was left with a lot of situations where I was trying to find a mentor just for some answers how to logistically do both things. And I started finding mentors within my own specialty, across specialties. And at times when I felt alone, I realized that many other women were going through these same Mm -hmm. things. And so how could I mentor people? And also, how could I find the resources I needed to be successful? 
is it un- it's not unique to medicine, but how is it different for women in medicine? I think for one thing, if medical students go straight through training and residency, the reproductive years are right during that time of extensive work hours. Residencies are capped at 80 hours a week, but yet 80 hours is a lot, particularly can be taxing when, such as in my experience, I was pregnant during residency, fellowship, um, on call, and then to have a baby, go on leave, and come back from maternity leave to, you know, being um, on call, going home, taking care of a newborn, and then trying to figure out just basics of child care and such. Um, we don't work normal hours, per sure. se. From being uh, being a mother aside, what are challenges that women face when they pursue a career in medicine? I think uh, there are several and uh, many opportunities, but for one, determining what specialty to go into. A lot of times people, when they're choosing a career, they they look for a mentor or someone that reminds them of themselves. And women are underrepresented in certain surgical subspecialties, other subspecialties, and certainly at leadership positions. So identifying someone to whom they can um, go to for insight um, can be a struggle. So just identifying mentors um, as well as different opportunities um, between men and women vary. We know that women are less likely to have leadership positions, chair positions, um, and so taking those things into consideration in ways to also intentionally mentor women um, can be useful. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, that I was struck by in, in our previous conversations and thinking of some of the research you've been working on is you know, we have um, not been able to figure out how to make sure that there are um, good opportunities for everyone. So it's not just that it's not about putting one group above another, but it's making sure the opportunities are equal so people can experience those those positions as they would based on their interests and skill set. And one of the things that I was struck by in our previous discussions is this concept of um, if you have a group um, of clinicians who um, need to publish, need to give uh, academic other academic uh, presentations, if we're talking about an academic specialty, but you don't have an infrastructure to support them, then you're never going to get people in leadership positions to make different choices, mm-hmm. potentially, or different changes, or even just reflect the workforce that you've established. I'm curious what sort of research you're working on uh, from a mentorship position, because I know that's a, a big area. Mm-hmm. So I, I think um, we have looked at the subjective mentorship within our own department and as well as across other medicine and subspecialties. And I think for the most part, there's a lot of mentoring that happens in early stage, but then mid-career people feel like they're less mentored. And that's particularly important to get those people from a mid-career associate to full professor, for example, in academics. So I think being very intentional in aligning uh, mentors and mentees and career goals, but also identifying sponsorship. And that's the other part, not just giving advice, but by sponsorship, saying, here's a speaking opportunity, here's a paper, and intentionally getting a diverse uh, pool to those opportunities. So you do see that getting better as time goes by? Um, I think that there are a lot of grassroots <laughs> efforts happening, and it's fantastic. I'm very lucky to be part of a, we call it a book club, but a cross-specialty group of women who have really mentored each other. I um, have multiple men who have been great mentors to me, um, and I needed that because there is a very – pain medicine is about 20% women. Mm. So without them, 
I would, I have a limited pool. And so I do think we're being more intentional. We're going to do a speed mentoring session in our department, uh, specifically to try and find mentors um, with whom you kind of naturally align and jive to have a more successful long-term um, relationship. Well, tell us about the CME course that you've developed. Yeah, I'm uh, very excited. We, my uh, Dr. Anjali Bagra is my co-director, and she's from Internal Medicine. And so together we are, um, we presented the idea to our department and division chairs who all were very supportive, both men and women. And we are looking to bring in not just institution, but also some national leaders in gender equity, business um, skills, self, um, or negotiating. Women are less likely to negotiate for themselves, um, communication strategies. Women are less likely to speak up in meetings. How do you get your point across? Um, wellness, resilience, a, a myriad of topics. And we have great speakers, Dr. Sharon Hayes, um, the leader of diversity and inclusion here at Mayo Clinic, as you know, um, Dr. Amy Williams, the chair of uh, medicine. And so we're really excited to have experience both clinically, leadership-wise, across specialties, academic, et cetera. I'm so glad to see these efforts taking place. One of the things we we see in the private sector is people realize that, um, you know, again, if you can't make your workforce diverse and uh, appeal to people across the spectrum, you're going to have a business problem because you need you need people to be able to do the work that you're trying to grow into. Medicine is no different. And so, you know, we think about the um, if we're looking at who are going to be the next generation physician, it's not just all men. It's men and women. So how do you make your workplace um, really receptive and supportive of everyone as they come out of different backgrounds and, and different training experiences and different family relationships? Well, I would imagine, like we said in the intro, in 2017, the number of women enrolling in medical schools exceeded the number of men. So I would imagine this might be a problem that even that point alone will help correct it. Mm-hmm. I think certainly the um, not just our recruiting um, into residencies and specialties, but also reflective of our patient populations that we're seeing, as well as recruiting into um, studies, women, underrepresented minorities, age, um, that we want that to be more diverse in all aspects. Well, we've been talking about women in medicine with Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist Dr. Susan Moshler. Dr. Moshler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Jacob Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.